Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. I am so glad to be with you today with my friend and colleague, Deb Kaplan. Welcome, Deb. Thank you, Rob. I'm excited to be here. I have a long bunch of stuff I want to say about you. So everybody hold your breath. I'm going to say a bunch of great stuff about Deb Kaplan. Deb Kaplan is an MA and MBA in LPC, a CSAT supervisor. She's a licensed therapist, author, and speaker specializing in the issues of attachment, sexual addiction, compulsivity, money work, and relational currency. Ooh. Deb is a certified EMDR therapist, a certified sex addiction therapist supervisor, and faculty member for the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction Professionals. After a successful career on Wall Street as a commodity option trader, I love that, Ms. Kaplan brought her financial acumen into the clinical realm and merged her fascination with sex, money, and power with her studies in psychology. Deb works with individuals and relationships uh, and couples in therapy to understand these complexities for successful outcomes in relationships and probably in the workplace. Deb is a co-editor of Reflections on the History of Sex Addiction, the Field, a Festschrift, and author of For Love and Money, Exploring Sexual and Financial Betrayal in Relationships. This was the inspiration for her groundbreaking therapy training for love and money, which is geared to clinicians who want to understand the often hidden dynamics of sex, money, and power in relationships. Deb is currently working on her next book. She she lectures nationally, is a great friend, and she'll tell you more about how to reach her later on. Welcome, Deb. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Rob. I'm very, very excited. Well, I love the topic because I like money and I like power <laughs> and I like sex <laughs> and I don't like abuse and I don't like addiction, but I'm sure these all fit together somehow. But what could go wrong when you have sex, money, and power? Like what could go wrong, right? <laughs> uh, stupidity. <laughs> So, Deb, you know, one of the reasons I'm really, really glad to have you here is we've had so many names in the media over the last couple of years of famous, wealthy, powerful people. And not just even recently, I'm thinking we had a few 10 years ago, 12 years ago, I had a long list, even some former presidents. So lots of people in power, in political power, more recently in the media in power, men who have clearly abused that power and acted out both sexually and I'm imagining in other ways that involve more than that. And I'm hoping you can maybe help us understand some of those dynamics. And, and I know everyone asks us, well, is that unique to famous and powerful people? And I bet you have some things to say about that. So what are your thoughts, Deb? My thoughts are that I'm so glad you are, that you and I are talking today because you're right. 
so many of these very famous, very noted and noteworthy individuals in politics, in social media and entertainment across the board do lend an absolute image for who is and who is not exploitive or abusive. But the fact is that you and me and and everyday relationships experience on some level at times that same abuse of power or with sex and money, because it doesn't have to be on a large public forum and in a front. It can happen in very subtle ways. That is not domestic violence, would not be considered domestic violence, but it's part of a relationship or a dynamic in a relationship where sex or money is being used. So are you saying, Deb, it might even be hard to notice that I'm being abused over time if I was a person who was experiencing the abuse of power in someone I worked for or lived with? Yes, in a sense that the person who is involved, the two people involved in this dynamic, it isn't always understood by the one being controlled. And I want to be careful when we use the word abuse, because abuse to many people sounds as if there's physical harm being being done. And therefore, I'm not being hit, I'm not being physically abused, therefore this cannot be happening. But abuse can happen in very subtle covert ways. Mm-hmm. How much money is given to another individual? In other words, access to money, the cutting off of funds, the ability to have funds only when something else, a quid pro quo, an agreement that I don't necessarily have free will in is happening. Mm-hmm. And therefore, this abuse of sex or power can happen very subtly, not just overtly. It's fascinating, Deb. I never really thought of I honestly never thought about the idea that I could control my spouse by if I, you know, if I were in this place by cutting off things they desire, by cutting off things they want to do, by limiting their lives with with my ability to tell them what I think and with my ability to control money. Yeah. Um, in my book for love and money that you referenced in my bio, and thank mm-hmm. you. Good book. Um, thank you. In the book, I I coined a term monetized rage. And monetized rage speaks to the arousal pattern or monetary and financial exploitation of one individual by another with elements of revenge, entitlement, and resentment. And rage. That's kind of narcissistic. uh, Certainly would involve a very distinct level of narcissism or self self-centeredness mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that would play into this type of control with monetary or financial exploitation. Absolutely. But when that is then paired with sexual exploitation or an arousal pattern with sex, that is the eroticized element of shame with anger and sex, that alone is very destructive. But when money gets involved and thread through that whole dynamic, it can be very thorny. It can get very complex and um, very difficult for the person involved who is being exploited to see. So we have some kind of big examples from the media and people in in the political world who have made uh, some serious mistakes around power, sex, and money and have abused people and become sort of public pariahs, if you will, around this issue. So we have some big balloon, Macy's parade, bad guys right up there who they lost their jobs. They were big media figures. Now they're nobodies. Nobody wants to talk to them, all that stuff. And is that is that who you have to be to abuse money, sex and power? Do you have to be one of those big balloon people who run the world? Well, that's a very 
really good question because many of us who are hearing this podcast will say, oh, this can't be me or it isn't my neighbor because he, she involved in this, they're not in the news, they're not, they don't play at that price point. But yes, the fact of the matter is that two people, any relationship where there's a disparity, an imbalance of power, be it financial, be it age, be it academic, it can take place when that big power differential is further amplified with control of money and sex. It can happen at any level of income and any demographic, any age, any gender. You know, we get a lot of questions, Deb, you and I, about these men, you know, sort of being these symbols of how sex, money, and power can be abused. But we don't hear so many stories about the dry cleaner who's abusing his staff or the dentist who's acting out with people he works with. Or it just seems like these folks get the big pages and the big headlines, but it doesn't really get followed up with a discussion about how this is affecting everyone in our culture. And it's an issue we all need to look at. And I'm curious about, do you get those calls like I do? Like, oh, well, it's just this guy, right? Or just these famous people, right? You get those, right? I get the phone calls from the partner who calls and says, my partner, my husband, for, for, for simplicity's sake for this uh, podcast, can we understand that this is across gender, sexual fluidity, uh, identity, gender identity does not matter. So you're saying women, women also abuse money and power and sex. Is that what you're saying? Oh, absolutely. We don't hear about that. I mean, I spent many years on Wall Street where certainly men in those leagues are by far and away the greater percentage identified. But make no mistake, women can certainly be a part of this exploitation as well. We don't hear about it because we don't look for it. But let's say the the woman who calls my office and says, my husband, who I just found out has been paying prostitutes or has been sleeping with other people anonymously. And I don't know who he's had sex with, but oh, by the way, I also found out that there is no money in our bank account because he has bled it dry and he has now moved it offshore or he has bled it dry and moved it into another state and another bank account. And I have no proof of where and how it went, but I know there's nothing in the bottom line. And I hear those phone calls and I hear people who talk about those they know who have those phone calls. You know, Deb, what I don't understand, and really I don't under, I do understand it, but I don't. Relationships, healthy ones, good ones, are supposed to be about allowing yourself to feel vulnerable and safe enough to know that your partner will be there for you, you know, even if you make a mistake or you don't do something right. Or we preach all day long as therapists about vulnerability. And yet when I think about the partner who makes themselves vulnerable to someone like this, I mean, they're doing all the right things. They're opening up, they're opening up their bank account, opening up their heart, opening up their body. And someone comes along and and looks at them like an object of something to be taken advantage of rather than something to be joined with. When we teach this stuff, Deb, I have to say, I hear a lot from people in the audience, you know, I'm single and now I think I'm going to stay single because I don't want to date. Because, yeah, because why don't want to, what, what, why would I want to enter into a relationship? Look what's going to happen to me. And right. to, to your point, we certainly, as human beings, you and I, as in our own personal lives, I, for myself, say when I hear all these stories, oh my God, I mean, like the person I think is so trustworthy, the people I know who I love, who I believe have a moral compass. Look, we're all flawed and we're all human. But what you're speaking to without having named is that one has to encompass a level of narcissism and entitlement, maybe even sociopathy, to act in such a way that would 
predate be predatory to another individual and so absolutely rob them, strip them of their agency. And that isn't always obvious because despite the fact that narcissism can parade loudly in the news and the media, it doesn't necessarily show up with a sandwich sign on your front lawn or walk in the door at the end of the day because that's what makes it so absolutely covert and not noticeable. So now I want to make my Me Too statement, which is that, you know, Deb, because I think you've sat in on, uh, on them. I've done some Me Too groups around the country with therapists at different conferences. And I don't know sure if you've heard this story or not, but, you know, once I, I did one and then I did two and then I did three and then I've done about six. And what I've had the opportunity to do is listen to women. And I understand this is not only women, but nonetheless, Me Too has primarily been a, a women's movement. And so I'm going to speak to it that way. And I've been listening to women talk about Me Too and men listening. And then I ask men to talk about Me Too and women listen. And, and what I've learned is shocking to me. I mean, really, Deb, I, I'm a fairly gentle, kind, nurturing, I mean, despite my bluster, human being. And, and I would certainly never maliciously hurt someone if I could avoid it. And what I hear from women, woman after woman after woman, I really mean this, is that every woman has had some form of abuse and regularly experiences it. That to be a woman in our culture is like walking out and you never know when you're going to run to a thorn bush because somebody is going to call out something about your body and the street at the gym. Someone's going to rub, rub up against you. Someone's going to hit on you or say the wrong thing. It seems like from what I've heard from the women that I've listened to, that it's almost a universal experience that a woman walking around the world has to put on some kind of body armor to make sure that she can handle what's going to come at her in the world. And I don't mostly hear men talk about it that way. I don't really hear men talk about that at all. And I'm curious about this because I know you don't want to tie it down to gender, but Me Too is, a, is indeed a lot about gender. I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating because you're right. I don't want to tie this down to gender. And yet I am well aware of the fact as a woman on Wall Street that whatever it was I accomplished had to be accomplished 2x, 3x, three times what my colleague, male colleague might have achieved. My achievements just to be seen, just to have a place at the table. Now, currently, where I lecture in the world, I lecture to financial organizations, I lecture to professional organizations, and at times, the very people to whom I'm lecturing may be decided, the decisions made to those organizations may be decided by males. And once they find out about my sex addiction affiliation, or the fact that I was on Wall Street, or that I talk about monetized rage, all of a sudden now, I'm really not necessarily the right speaker they want to have at their organization, all because I come as a female, not a male, that I may go rogue, that I may be flipping the tables, that I may preach from a place of you men out there. So I'm really hesitant to say, look, this is a problem that we socialize in youth, in our childhoods, in our families of origin, and that while Sexual abuse or abuse, covert or over, happens in the Me Too movement publicly to women who are abused as adults or children. There are boys out there who receive the same, and yet they're not speaking up to the numbers because perhaps the numbers of abused happen to be in this movement more female. Trying to break into professional organizations as a female in the male-dominated world of Wall Street will be difficult for women versus men. Well, I will say this to you as a gay man who has tremendous affection and appreciation for women and, you know, really feels like, you know, I got their back. 
it's very easy for me to turn to another man when I see a sexy guy walking in the room and say, oh, look at the blah, blah, blahs on him. And I understand that every man, even though men won't admit it, you know, that men are frequently, you know, oh, yes, me too. Yes, I respect, I respect. But they walk by a woman on the street, a couple of them are like, hey, look at this, look at that. They may not say it out loud, but they we, we bond through that kind of reinforcement of you find that sexy. Yes, I find that sexy too. And yet that isn't healthy for the culture or the relationship for us to sort of play into and emphasize that way of seeing people. But how much of it is nuanced? And so the, the, the individuals themselves who might be doing the objectifying or the exploiting or the controlling, how many of those individuals wouldn't in a million years endorse that that is ever uh, acceptable, and yet don't see themselves as part of the individuals perpetrating. And that's what I meant about every woman, because right. when I listen, you know, again, listen to group after group, each woman has a little story. Something happened to Jim, something happened at work, something happened when she was a girl, something happened on a date, but everyone has a story and every man doesn't have that story. And so it makes me think that uh, to some degree, and I'm sorry again to bring this into gender, but women have to put on armor. And in fact, you know, you were in that world, Deb, you were a sole woman working in a men's environment. And, you know, I, I don't know if this is subtle or not, but I want to share this with you. In talking to the Me Too women, uh, all of these people, I noticed that were different kinds of armor that different women, women would put on. So in other words, when a woman would walk into a position where men had power and she did not, some women would play up their sexuality. Be like, hey, you want to fuck with me? I'll fuck with you. You like those? I like these too. You know, and they would play up to it with their dress, with their, they were going to be a match, you know, call out by cat call to the guys. And there are other women who played down there. They almost like went to work as grandmas, you know, with, or Victoria, like, a, a, you know, turtlenecks and covered up and because they didn't want to be seen in any way as sexual, have any of that come at them. And then everything in the middle. And it somehow made me think that women sort of gear up to protect themselves in the world in one way or another from men's abuses pretty frequently in very subtle ways that are not as overt as you might think about sexual abuse, but really leave you guys feeling defended as opposed to open. Your, your story is reminding me of the time back in the day when trading floors had open outcry, where you'd stand around in trading pits, similar to those who know the movie Trading Places from years gone, gone by. Um, those days where I was a trader in the commodity option pits in New York City, I remember the days I walked onto the floor, the trading floor. Now, it's a large expanse of space. There's no division between different trading rings. And there are women on the floor, but the women are, are more like clerks. They're referred to as clerks. They're trading clerks. And the ratio of women traders to male traders is probably one to 200. One of me to 200 of them. Now, in those days, I was married. And while I was a female on the floor and those who in the ring with whom I traded in the various commodity groups, while they knew I was married, they still had to reduce our relationship, collegial or peer as it was, down to a sexual uh, innuendo and banter. I deflected it. I didn't care. It wasn't abusive to me because I have very thick skin, but I had to deflect it. Right. And that had to cost energy and time and focus from your work, from your party. It was irritating. And it was, it, and I don't want to curse on the sake of this podcast, but you know, I would, I would really in my mind just say, seriously, like seriously, this, this is what you're going to reduce our exchange down to. And I have the opportunity to absolutely thrash you from with all the money that I can trade out of, you know, get you out of your position. 
And that's how you're going to reduce me because if that's how that makes you feel all the more powerful to see me as this object, then go for it. But I'm not buying into it. And I was fortunate because I traded my own money. I didn't work for anybody. And so I had a very unique position of not needing anyone to make it in that world. But other women aren't that fortunate. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. So you have said to me privately, Deb, and I know I don't know if this obviously is not necessarily the goal of the podcast, but I love to wander the streets with you here. You've said to me that there are arenas in which you see the Me Too movement taking place, like I mean, really sort of beginning to take root. And I see it, for example, in the entertainment industry where I have a young niece who's in her 20s and she's having the time of her life. No one's going to touch her. No one's going to bother her. I mean, they're super aware of this issue right now. And, and they're putting women forward for power positions. So good for her. But you've said to me when it comes to the law or maybe financial, the financial world, Me Too, well, I just read an article, I think, Me Too just never happened. It doesn't exist when you still go out on the trading floor or in your big financial or legal firm. Me Too never happened and nobody ever talks about it. That is correct. So there was Payne Webber, anyone who remembers that name from God knows how many years ago, and E.F. Hutton, there were uh, class action suits back in the 1980s that were brought on those companies because of a, it's called the boom, boom room. The boom, boom room? The boom, boom room. I mean, think about that term. That is so, it's such a dated term, but that was what the class action suit centered around, where men would come down to these boom, boom rooms, and they would have strippers come in, and they'd be smoking and drinking. And so the class action suit took place, and it was at the time hopeful that maybe this would be a scion, this would help change Wall Street. Nothing ever happened. And until, until I think it was like 2017, in the lower district courts of New York, Goldman Sachs themselves were brought before uh, the courts by 200 women within the rank and file and the C-suite of the company for not advancing women and for actually because of payment differential, because of sexualization, because of sexual harassment. And you don't hear about that because Wall Street has been more or less immune from the front page social media fodder. So do you believe, and and by the way, the military had 27,000 incidences of sexual abuse last year. So when we get into male-dominated environments, either it's inevitable or it's impossible to negotiate or, you know, we say women have fought their way into situation, you fought your way into a situation where you wanted to work, where you wanted to be part of, where you thought you could shine. And yet you had so much working against you from day one. So Deb, um, how has all this informed the work you do, the therapy you do, the, the work you write about, and your teaching? The, the experience you had in that such a you know, heavily male-dominated environment where you had to show up as a woman and perform to your satisfaction, and then apparently to the satisfaction of everyone around you, how has that informed your work and how you look at the struggles of power and money now, and sex, of course? 
Yeah, it shows up in particular when I'm working with couples and who uh, have come to me either for financial intensives because money is such a huge issue in the dissolution and or divorce of a relationship. Money issues are by far and away the greater factors that are negatively impacting relationships than even sex or infidelity, sexual infidelity. Oh, I think number one reason American couples divorce is finance and number two reason is uh, cheating and infidelity. Yeah, well, surveys uh, will play out the fact that money and work and even the American Psychological Association has said that money is the greatest factor. So when couples come to see me for, for therapy, even when they're coming because they're arguing about children or parenting, what I notice and how I can help them is to really help them see and understand where there might be an imbalance of shared or not shared power how any differentials of power in the relationship, the power basis from which they're working, but their attachments, you know, a secure attachment. And I'm throwing something that sounds very left field. I just went and did a hard left here, but where couples come together, what it is that originally brings them together and what they most value speaks to another phrase I, I coined, relational currency. Uh, in my book, For Love and Money, I talk a lot about how to level the playing field. And by, by that, I mean, what does each individual in the relationship value most? What is it they bring to the relationship that I value about myself or that my partner values about me? And helping clients get back to that and really identify and then speak to that in their shows of affection or their displays of affection or how they relate to each other and how sex and money may play into that becomes a very profound experience. And I might add to a great success. What would be some of the key signs to you that a couple is struggling with financial issues in a way that maybe they don't recognize or that are more dominant than they may think are the because they're struggling with kids and, you know, the house or whatever they're coming in for. Yeah. And to those of the listeners who are, are, are enjoying yours and my conversation right now, if you're thinking to yourself, well, we don't have any of those problems, you know, just because my husband's practice is bleeding money and, you know, my, my, my grandmother's inheritance, thank God we have the money that we can keep, you know, keep paying our bills and our debt, but that there's no resolution. There's just more payment and enabling or that they're spending out of control, which looks like tremendous debting because we have to now borrow money to actually pay off the debts that we are accruing because we're spending. And when there's not a unified understanding of how we as a couple are going to get out of this, or I, individual, how I have these defeating, self-defeating chronic patterns of behavior that I keep getting into a successful financial stability and then I undermine myself. Mm. These are the things that would want, that would really warrant some introspection. And that's what would really invite someone to give me, someone like me, a call to say, hey, this isn't working. I'm, so I'm not doing something. Or to read For Love and Money, which I think is such a great guide to those kinds of issues, to recognize them. And, uh, you know, Deb, I have another question for you. It seems like, you know, I, uh, my focus is sexuality and, and drug addiction, but you equate in a well, I mean, you put sex power and money together in a sentence. And in a way you see, I think the abuse of all three is being pretty similar. 
And, you know, I would say somebody abusing someone sexually or taking advantage of them is very different than financial, is very different than flaunting their power. But you might say that it all comes from the same place emotionally or that the person who's willing to allow someone to abuse them in one area might end up letting themselves be abused in another. So they must be similar. Yes. And and thank you for that wonderful introduction to the last part of this, because the fact of the matter is growing up or being, I guess, parented in a way where you're the belief that I'm not valuable or lovable enough, or that things of value to me, if be it possession, sexual, financial, or monetary, that that's more important to show that I matter or that I'm important to somebody else. Once I really abandon myself and my self-worth where I hold on to having to have something to achieve or to establish myself as lovable. Anything that is outside of my self-worth is already an externalized sense of my esteem. Which our culture reinforces in so many ways, money, sex, power. (laughs) There they are. Again, time and again, Mm -hmm. what do we so value in this culture? Financial success, sexual prowess, sexual youth, right? And we really value youth for our sexual ability and our sexuality. You know, we don't really age well in our society. We also know, and you, you and I have talked about this, that women have two stages of attraction to men. One is a stage of sort of youth, body, sexy, going to you know reproduce with that guy. Another stage, and it's fairly biological, is status where I'm looking at that man and thinking he can supply for me, he can protect my, I mean, there are pieces to what attracts a woman to a man and what attracts a man to a man for that matter, that are not just about sexy. They're also about provider. Women provide status uh, is because I can provide children. Uh huh. I can provide social, I can, pro- I can provide looks. And this sounds incredibly chauvinistic and, and, and sexist, but there might be an element of that in some relationships because the shared traditional values that two people may bring together doesn't matter whether you're both male or female. Of course, if, if it's both male, you're going to have to have a surrogate or you're going to have somebody who's going to birth that baby. However, I as a partner may be loving my partner's status of what he or she gives me access to. Yes. And by being in that partnership, I am more than I was alone. Oh, yes. And I'm going to hold on to this relationship because if it's the last thing I do, I can't afford to lose everything that I have married into, bought into, or colluded around. Mm-hmm. Especially as we age. <laughs> Especially as we age. I have a question that is not related to sex, love, and addiction, but I do see it and I talk about it a lot in my family life. And I just want to know if you see it because this, this just bugs me. So if you don't mind. Try me on this one. Um, so when I was young, and I remember watching TV, and you'd see a family on TV, like the Brady Bunch or the Partridge family, or they were in middle-class, two-story suburban homes. They had a nice fridge, and they actually had a housekeeper. But when I look in TV now and I see a family, they're living in a 4,000-square-foot home with high-end kitchens and dishwashers and marble and crystal. And I I rarely see anyone in an advertisement or in basically any television show I watch who lives the way I think most people can afford. And I think we used to have much more, many more examples in the media of, you know, I might want to live like that, or that would be comfortable for me. It seems to me so much now of what I see is truly unattainable for most people. But it's sort of paraded as well, you know, if you work hard enough, or this is how all these people live. How skewed do you think we are in terms of 
what we think of as important, how we what we think of as valuable, how we how we value ourselves. I mean, how screwed up is all of this? It seems to me that it's that this idea of looking outward and what I see in the media everywhere is so much more that I could possibly attain or get to. And it, I don't remember the world being quite that way 20 or 30 years ago. There were people who had the, hey, be like me, baby, you know, the 70s guy with the Rolls Royce and the, you know, hang in there, kitty poster and all that. But, but we didn't see conspicuous wealth even in the 80s. It was confined to a certain population. Now it seems to be the expectation of everyone that we're going to have marble counters and Bosch dishwashers and Sub-Zero refrigerators. You know what I mean? And I don't quite, you know, I'm not in that league. I don't quite understand the expectation that feels like it's placed on all of us to to be that. And I guess, I don't know if you can answer that. It's a big question, but I just wanted to bring it to you to say, do you feel this too? I don't feel that. I observe and have observed over the time on this earth that we go through cycles that I think are very closely tied to our economic upturns and downturns. And we've been in one of the longest economic, uh, fruitful, and by that economic, I mean, out coming out of our recession after the 2008 economic meltdown, the collapse. But what people equate the um, stock market with is a very strong, robust economy. However, what has also come about since the downturn and the collapse. With that collapse, we have dug our way up and out of that and concurrent, unrelatedly, but concurrent has been the rise of social media. And with the advent of social media, now not only does what happens in New York get played out across, uh, you know, it doesn't just stay, what happens on the East Coast doesn't stay in the East Coast, what happens on the West Coast doesn't stay in the West Coast. Now East knows about West, West knows about East, and, and Kansas knows about Florida and Florida knows about Alaska, who knows about what, wherever. The point is, there is one for all and all for one. And I get to see what my neighbor's doing down the street. And I get to see what my friends are doing across the country. And if I'm not keeping up, so keeping up with the Joneses in the 50 is now a 24, 357, you know, 356 pursuit. I was going to say the problem, of course, is that the Joneses, I have some friends who are the Joneses and they're on Facebook. And I got to say, when I talk to my friends who are on Facebook, their lives are perfect. All their kids are going to the prom. Everyone's got new crystal. They just got married. They're having a, a 90th birthday celebration. Everything looks so perfect on people's Facebook page. And I think it's just like the 1950s. You know, we're just seeing the perfect family that's always happy. And but when I talk to some of these folks, their lives aren't so good. And you and I know as therapists that that's the first and fastest way to get to a false self. You've got the, 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 what the world sees versus what the world will never see. Mm -hmm. Deb Kaplan, ladies and gentlemen, my friend, an amazing person, Deb Kaplan. And Deb, how can people find you if they want to read your books or have a, do a workshop or a seminar with you? Or if a company wants to find you to, to invite you in to do some work, how do they do that? So I can be found, my, my website is www. Deborah Kaplan counseling.com. You can find me on Facebook under Deborah Kaplan or Deborah Kaplan Counseling. You can find me on LinkedIn and you can find me in any click on Amazon. You can find for love and money. You can, through my website, contact me either by email or such. Uh, I am not on Twitter. And I am easily found and easily sought. Uh, you can also listen to these podcasts and others that are out there. And I have a pretty wide digital footprint. So um, I am easily accessed. 
And Deb, just so everyone can know, what part of the country are you in if people want to come to you? I work and reside in Tucson, Arizona, lovely place to be in the, in the winter. My reach is by far beyond the borders of Arizona. So, yeah. Folks, this is Deb Kaplan, uh, author of For Love and Money, and one of the experts we have here often on sex and relationship healing. Thanks, Deb. We'll have you back. My absolute pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. More to come. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.